You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Supreme Court ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, a ruling which ended segregation in schools in America, may not have ever happened had it not been for two heart attacks. The first was when Chief Justice Fred Vinson unexpectedly had a heart attack and died in 1953. Vinson was in the middle of dealing with a divided court facing its biggest challenge in recent years how to handle school segregation in the midst of a series of five NAACP lawsuits in a variety of places, not just Topeka, Kansas, but also Delaware, Virginia, Washington, D.C., and South Carolina, but all consolidated under one claim, that of Oliver Brown, a Topeka, Kansas welder whose daughter Linda lived in a mixed-race neighborhood and wanted to go to school with her friends. Not to mention, go to the school that was six blocks away from her house instead of walking seven blocks to then get a bus to go to the school for blacks. The NAACP lawyers, headed up by Thurgood Marshall, who would end up on the court himself, chose the Topeka system for the reason that it was not in the South, so it would look like they weren't singling out the South, and for the very reason that the Topeka system wasn't all that bad. Uh, The black schools were, as the court testimony would find, actually equal in quality to the white schools. And only the elementary schools were segregated. Integration already occurred in Topeka at the middle and high school levels. This differed from the Virginia or South Carolina cases, where the black schools were far inferior and all the schools were not integrated. By using Topeka, there could be no side discussion of quality. The court couldn't just rule the black schools are inferior, you need to bring them up to standard, and leave it at that. They had to confront the issue of whether the previous court doctrine, which held that as long as schools were equal, they could be separate, was well-founded. Fifty years earlier, when a black man named Homer Plessy purposely sat down in the white section of a Louisiana railroad car, and was fined $300, he sued, saying his 14th Amendment rights were violated. The 14th Amendment, of course, came after the Civil War, and the most important part holds that every citizen is equal under the law, equal protection clause. The court ruled against Plessy in the case of Plessy versus Ferguson instilled the legal doctrine of separate but equal, a doctrine that permitted most of the Jim Crow laws in the South to go on and as a legal concept made separate black and white schools legal. By using Topeka as the lead case, NAACP lawyers were taking on Plessy directly. Chief Justice Vinson faced a court that was divided. It was made up of a group of New Dealers. FDR, with 16 years as president, appointed almost everyone on the court. A few were appointed by Truman. Felix Frankfurter, an Austrian immigrant who was Jewish, opposed school segregation, and was sympathetic to the NAACP case, as was law professor William O. Douglas, who also had been appointed by FDR. But Justice Stanley Reed, a Kentucky Democrat, was opposed to overturning Plessy. Justice Hugo Black was a former Klan member, 
but he had voted in several cases for civil rights, while at the same time maintaining that the courts should not be making laws. They should just be interpreting them. Robert Jackson was a bitter opponent of Hugo Black, had stopped talking to him, felt that he had been robbed of the chief justice's job by Black's treachery. Jackson was opposed to segregation in schools, and he was a liberal in some cases. He had wrote an opinion that it was not necessary and it could not be mandated to make someone salute the flag. But Jackson was sensitive to the impact of any decision on the South, and he felt that any court action might have an an adverse effect on the progress that blacks were making. He felt that blacks made progress in the arts and sciences and were by their own actions rather than the court's actions proving that segregation was wrong. Now, in a lot of cases, that was used by proponents of segregation just to foster the system. But Robert Jackson was a very considered justice, and um, you sort of have to take him on his word on that. Harold Burton, the former popular mayor of Cleveland, and Sherman Minton, a former senator from Indiana, were anti-segregationists, but their votes weren't clear. Tom C. Clark personally wanted to end segregation, but he was a conservative, and he doubted the court had the power. He felt the court had made precedent with its uh, 50 years of rulings on separate but equal. Chief Justice Vincent felt the vote might go 5-4, with Jackson, Clark, Reed, and perhaps Minton or Black voting no. And that such an important decision, a decision that would force all the schools in America to integrate, could not be taken seriously if it were passed by a bare majority. Vincent, former Kentucky congressman, himself was troubled by the role the court might take in deciding such a matter. He stalled for time. He asked for the case to be reheard, for the arguments to be remade, so that the court could examine the 14th Amendment on which civil rights rulings had been based. And in 1953, while this research was going on, and while Vincent was learning that the post-Civil War Congress that passed the 14th Amendment, you know, it also had stipulations that uh, the U.S. government wouldn't pay for Confederate debt, and that Confederates couldn't serve in Congress, although that was later repealed, that this Congress that passed the 14th Amendment had little public schooling to regulate. There wasn't much public schooling in the country, and it didn't look good for getting a stronger majority than the 5-4. In the midst of this, Vincent had an unexpected heart attack and died. That was the first heart attack that helped along the Brown decision. Dwight D. Eisenhower was now president. He appointed Earl Warren, the governor of California, and a former tough-on-crime prosecutor who he felt would bring to the bench conservative values. The appointment was certainly inspired by political factors. Warren had not been a judge. But he had been the Republican vice presidential candidate in 1948 and lost a narrow election. He also ran for president, and he was a favorite son candidate in California in 1952. But he stood down for Eisenhower. That Warren was a politician rather than a judge was not all that surprising. Many of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal judges had been politicians. Certainly the majority of the court at the time had been former politicians. But Warren was an exceptional politician. He had run three times and won three times for governor of California. And he remains the only California governor to have done so. In 1946, he ran in the Republican, Democratic, and Progressive Party primaries and won all three party primaries. Thus, he faced no general election opponent in that year. He was popular and successful setting policies leading to a boom in California generally and creating its university system. A man who had wielded executive power 
Warren had no time for arguments about the limitations of the court's power or separation between the branches of government. His opinion was that once it had decided, the court could act. And this general philosophy of Earl Warren changed American law in the late 20th century. History likes heroes. And so in the Brown case, as we're starting to build up to here, this Warren court and Earl Warren is thought of as the hero, you know, standing alone in the crowd. But that's not really the right image. We have to put the Brown decision in a context that we often don't think of. Brown was not about a group of robed individuals sitting in a room deciding something that no one else agreed with. Brown represented a building change in American public opinion about segregation. Earl Warren's new Supreme Court was taking a stand, but not so much on a limb alone. Lower district courts had put the issue at the Supreme Court's door, issuing rulings that that said only while the law stood, Plessy v. Ferguson was still the law of the land, separate but equal was still the law but hinting that the Supreme Court could overturn it. And a Delaware judge, in one of the cases that would be commingled with the Brown case, said directly, I believe segregation is unlawful, but I think the Supreme Court must be the one to overturn it. So lower courts were putting this at the Supreme Court's door. Another factor that impacted the decision that we don't hear a lot about in history is that the Eisenhower administration and its attorney general argued both for the reversal of Plessy versus Ferguson, the integration of the schools, and that it be done with all deliberate speed. Even the United Nations had weighed in against racial segregation in a 1950 decree, and that gave the integrated Soviet Union a propaganda advantage over the segregated United States and added an issue of anti-communism to the segregation battle. And there was also Supreme Court precedent. In two separate court decisions, Sweat versus Painter and McLaurin versus Oklahoma, the court had already cast doubt on separate but equal by insisting that black students be allowed to attend white schools and higher education where facilities were unequal. Would have been difficult for the court to find Brown any other way that it did given those precedents. But that context doesn't take away from the fact that Earl Warren quickly came to see the importance of the case and as a master politician quickly surmised much as Winston had that politically, the decision had to be unanimous. There could be not one dissent that could spark any hope of overturning that Southerners could use to delay the decision. After arguments were heard in the case, he used his deft political skills to convince the other judges. He refused to entertain old arguments about the court's power or precedent. Forget the 14th Amendment. Forget Plessy. Forget precedents. Segregation is wrong We know it's wrong, and the court needs to make it right, he argued. He saw a new way to think about the court's power, which I believe was illuminating to some of the judges who were kind of on the fence about balance of power issues. And I believe a most important advantage is that Warren took leadership. He agreed to lead the charge. He agreed to author the opinion. He stuck himself out. In the end, the holdouts on the court seemed to be Justice Stanley Reed, and Justice Robert Jackson. But Warren didn't want a 7-2 decision. Only a unanimous decision would send the right message, would lead to change in the school systems. And then came the second heart attack that would be crucial to the vote on Brown versus Board of Education. Justice Robert Jackson had a heart attack, though it was not fatal, and he went to a hospital to recover. And there, several times, Earl Warren went to see him and eventually got him to agree to go along with the decision. 
as Robert Jackson would die soon after the Brown decision, he didn't speak much about Brown, and no one's quite sure what Earl Warren said to convince Robert Jackson. We do know that he agreed to include in the decision some of Jackson's language about how blacks had advanced in art and science into the decision. But otherwise, we don't know what was said, whether it was Jackson's weakened state that lead to him to be more agreeable or whether it was he was actually convinced. We do know that despite his condition, Jackson did come to the Supreme Court building and appear uh, the day of the decision. Once Justice Jackson's vote was in the bag, it was now 8-1, and Earl Warren moved on to Justice Stanley Reed, the Kentucky Democrat who had no interest in integrating schools. Stanley, Earl Warren said, you are all by yourself now. You've got to decide if that's really what's best for the country. Justice Reed never agreed with the Brown decision, but cajoled by Earl Warren, not wanting the spotlight on him, he agreed to go along with the others. And all of the justices, including Robert Jackson, sat as Earl Warren read a short decision that he himself authored, short enough, as Warren insisted, so that it could be printed in the newspapers in its entirety that the Supreme Court of the land ordered schools to integrate. Segregation of educational facilities is inherently unequal, the court found. Now, in 2007, there is no Earl Warren on the court. There's a new chief justice and a court that's divided. In parents involved in the community schools versus the school board of Seattle, the Seattle school system used parental choice to determine where children would go to school. That was the, that was the first resort. But if the school was filled, the tiebreaker was racial. If the choice was between two students, the Seattle School Board ordered that the racial makeup of the school would determine who got to go to that school. Whichever student best contributed to the racial makeup got entry. A similar system was used in Louisville, Kentucky, and the case was joined with this one. Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Antoine Scalia, Samuel Alito, as well as Clarence Thomas, thought the system of using race and decision about school attendance was completely unconstitutional. Roberts felt he was preserving the Brown decision. The best way to end race discrimination in schools, the Chief Justice said, is to end race discrimination in schools. Now, an interesting event, Judge Anthony Kennedy, who was appointed uh, by President Reagan, concurred with the plurality decision but issued a separate concurrent decision in which he opined that the chief justice had gone too far. So he agreed with the majority that the system was unconstitutional, but he had a different reasoning. Now in this, Kennedy becomes the third justice, and this becomes the third case involving race and education, Bakke, Grutter, and now Parents v. Seattle, where one single justice has a crucial decision that determines the court's opinion. In this case, Anthony Kennedy's opinion was that eliminating race altogether was going too far. There's still a role for race in education. Where Kennedy's decision is going to come to play, though, is in setting attendance zones or building new schools. He doesn't want the decision about any individual student to be based on race, only about students in the aggregate. Justices Breyer, Stevens, Ginberg, and Souter dissented. 
with Breyer taking the unusual step of reading his dissent from the bench for 20 minutes, saying it's not so often in the law that so few have changed so much, and accusing the majority of misreading the Brown decision. Their strong dissent uh, threw a spotlight on the fact that unlike Earl Warren's court of 1954, this was a 5-4 decision, truly a 4-4-1 decision, and a far cry from the United Earl Warren court that in 1954 kept its differences quiet and issued its Brown decision unanimously. What's fascinating to me about the Parents versus Seattle decision is how much history plays a role. For Chief Justice Roberts, he drew a line from his decision directly back to Brown, and he said that he felt it was completely in compliance with Brown. Now, you can make a little bit of an argument here because Brown, in the end, was about a student who wanted to go to a school near their home, and so is the Parents versus Seattle case. He even read in his decision, a statement from one of the lawyers that had argued Brown, one of the NAACP lawyers, that said that no state may make a law to use race as a factor in affording educational opportunities among its citizens. He may not have counted on the fact that the man who said that, Robert L. Carter, still alive, now 90 years old, said that his viewpoint was being stood on its head. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The justices who dissented also used history, arguing that the case had overturned the settled law of Brown in cases afterward. I find this all fascinating from a historical point of view because it shows the uses and sometimes misuses of history. And one does have to be careful in the process of considering history to the events of today, especially doing something like a complete time warp from one historical event, the Brown decision, to another 50 years later, the parents' decision, without consideration of the intervening events in between. It's a time warp that both sides may be guilty of. So did parents involved in the community and Meredith versus Jefferson really overturn Brown? Not exactly. It's still illegal, obviously, in this country to have black and white schools separately. But that's a situation that really doesn't exist. What it does affect, however, is all of the remedies and all of the additional court cases that came after Brown. So to understand the Seattle and Louisville decisions, it's worthwhile to look at what happened. You cannot understand what happened between the two cases without thinking of at least eight other cases. Brown II, Cooper, Green, Montgomery, Swan, Milliken, Bakke, and Grutter. And to look at what happened after that moment when the court handed down its unanimous Brown decision so you know where parents fits in. After the Brown decision, per the Eisenhower Justice Department's instructions, the Supreme Court, again unanimous and again written by Earl Warren, said in what's called the Brown II decision that given that they've already found that segregation is illegal, school systems must now 
correct segregation with all deliberate speed. They meant that to be very fast. School systems, especially in the South, took that to be as soon as possible or extremely slow. And there was massive resistance in the South. Many refused to participate. In Louisiana, schools attempted to simply reorganize their public schools as private ones. So they didn't have to comply. That was invalidated by the Supreme Court in 1962 in Hall v. St. Helena Parish. Prince Edward County in Virginia, one of the original Brown cases, just closed its public schools entirely for five years until the court in Griffin v. Prince Edward County ordered them to open. And in Little Rock, Arkansas, when nine black students tried to enter Little Rock High, it was necessary for President Eisenhower to send federal troops to escort the students and to restore order. After this, the Little Rock School Board, wanting to comply with the court's decision but under tremendous pressure, tried to get out of it. And they argued before the Supreme Court to attempt to get a two-year delay to integrate. So in 1958, four years after the Brown decision, Earl Warren, and again a unanimous court, issues another opinion in Cooper v. Aaron saying, no, school systems cannot. Brown is the law of the land, and districts can't just ignore it. So now school systems were doing battle with district courts, and the reality is that in addition to many other historic rulings, Earl Warren spent all of his career on the Supreme Court, which would stretch from 1953 to 1969. He spent all of his career putting out fires related to Brown. In a 1968 decision, 14 years after Brown, in Green versus the County School Board, he said that schools could not comply with Brown simply by having a free choice system, where students could go wherever they wanted to. It was their choice. And that and district courts read that to mean that there was going to have to be some forced integration between schools in, in, within a district. And in 1969, in U.S. versus Montgomery, the court upheld a, de, a district court's desegregation order, which insisted on a ratio of race for each school. These two decisions led to busing as a remedy. If schools were located in separate areas and needed to be integrated, busing became the only possibility to get students from one place to other, and many district courts were now ordering it. But it was not till 1971, two years after now, Earl Warren had retired, and Nixon appointed a new chief justice, Warren Berger, to the court. That the court faced the decision It's probably more relevant to the parents involved in the community versus Seattle decision, and that is the Swan versus the Charlotte-Mecklenburg decision. The Charlotte-Mecklenburg School District of North Carolina was segregated despite many court orders to change. The district court judge, who was an opponent of busing, ordered the busing of black students into some of the white schools because he felt it was the only way he could comply with the Supreme Court's mandate. He wanted the population of each school to reflect 9 to 33% black versus white students. When the school system still didn't comply, the NAACP sued and in another unanimous decision, the now Burger Court affirmed that district courts could order busing. But Chief Justice Burger was no Earl Warren. He was actually against busing, but he switched his opinion so that he would not be on the losing side of the issue and could write the opinion, an opinion which could limit the scope. And he attempted to severely limit the scope of what courts could order school systems to do until other justices protested. But in a sign of that dissent that was hidden in that decision, three years later, a more divided court would put a limit on the Swan decision, 
ruling in Milliken versus Bradley in 1974 that busing could not be used to bus students from Detroit into the suburbs. And that is where the court system, in effect, left Brown. Integration was now, from 1974 forward, for inside school districts only. That meant that while segregated districts still had to integrate by busing if necessary, the Brown decision could no longer be used as a mandate to totally integrate all education. had to be within school districts only. This, among other factors, led to an increase in the so-called white flight, that is, the tendency of white families to leave the cities and move into the suburbs. And it also meant that the Brown decision would end up affecting the South far more than the North. That's the context we have to understand the parents involved in the community schools for Seattle School Board. Brown didn't integrate all the schools in the land. It simply made, after two decades, forced segregation impossible. After Milliken, school cases would not dominate the court's agenda, and by the 1970s, most school districts were in compliant with their inter-district plans. Then the battleground switched to higher education, when a Vietnam vet and a trained engineer named Alan Bakke came back from the war and decided that, given his experience in the war, that he liked and would like to pursue medicine. Bakke was white, and he applied to the University of Davis Medical School. In 1973 and 1974, UC Davis Medical School used a system where there was a group of seats reserved for minority students, and for these seats there was a lower test score to to be accepted. When Bakke was not accepted, and he learned of this system, he sued. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. And in the 1978 decision of Board of Regents of University of California v. Bakke, the court ordered the university to admit him. They found that a quota system employed by the school was wrong and violated Bakke's 14th Amendment rights, but they did not agree with what lower courts had said, that race could not be used at all in admissions decision. Bakke is an interesting decision because it was a plurality decision, not unlike the parents v. Seattle. Four justices concurred, four justices dissented from the decision, and one justice, Lewis Powell, had a middle position. He decided to declare the medical school policy unconstitutional, thus he joined the majority, and he allowed entrance to Bakke. But then he decided to set up a constitutional test that the other four who made up the majority did not agree with, and actually the dissenters did, making it a very strange case. But Powell's test became officially the opinion of the court because without his vote, the majority decision would not be the majority. That's similar to what's happening here in the parents' case with Anthony Kennedy. And interestingly enough, it is Kennedy 
who replaced Powell on the court. Powell's decision in Bakke said that scrutiny must be applied to any racial preference. It's okay to consider race, among other factors, but the test has to serve a compelling interest. And that the interest can be, for example, in a segregated school system, correcting that segregation. It can be, for example, in a medical school for the purpose of employing doctors in a minority community. Uh, And another interest, the one that he held, is that it can increase diversity in the student body, which he saw as a positive goal. His concurrent opinion basically ended the use of quota systems that preserved affirmative action, not only in education, but in, in other areas. The next case to understand is Grutter versus Bollinger, and this is just recently from 2003. It is the Michigan University law case. In deciding whether to admit a student, the Michigan Law School considered GPA, LSAT, personal statements, letters, recommendations, and an essay in the admission. But another factor, in addition to those, was did the student increase diversity? The law school did not define that diversity as racial diversity, though the university had a policy of reaching a critical mass of racial diversity diversity, though skillfully they did not define a a number or a quota to this critical mass goal. A narrow court with Sandra Day O'Connor as the deciding vote upheld this program. Sandra Day O'Connor said that it fit with Powell's previous decision in the Bakke case that the racial diversity standard fit a compelling government interest. She also added a time factor in this decision. There must be a time limit to race programs. And Michigan had said that they didn't plan to use race forever. And she took the Michigan University Law School at its word. With the Brown II, Cooper, Green, Montgomery, Swan, Milliken, Bakke, and Grutter decisions now considered, the parents' decision could be seen not as proponents or opponents of it would like to see it as a direct line between the parents' decision and the Brown decision, but as a zigzag between the decisions of a changing court with changing membership and opinions, and now, three times in a row, decisions based on one lone holdout justice. Looking at all these cases, the opinion of Chief Justice Roberts in the four-justice plurality to end all race consideration in education seems to be a bit hasty. At the same time, charges from the opponents that this decision overturns Brown tends to be blind to the history in this case and fails to see that a decision like Milliken effectively ended the thrust for integration by incentivizing white residents to leave mixed neighborhoods. And given that we are only talking about intra-city programs that can be integrated at all, most of America is no longer affected by Brown or this parent's decision, as most of America is in as most of America lives in suburban areas. History doesn't always provide answers, but certainly adds perspective. After reviewing these cases, I can see that Sandra Day O'Connor in the Grunter decision did a service to the future of racial balance and education in her decision. And I would tend to agree with her take on how to handle the issue in the current time. It's her case that's been, and not Brown, that's been chipped away at and that saved Kennedy's concurrent position would have been wiped out by the parents versus Seattle decision. Like Sandra Day O'Connor, I see that there must be a point at which racial consideration in education ends. Though 2007 may be too early, especially considering with 
a, a school system like the Louisville school system only be, was declared officially integrated in 2000. But there does have to be a point at which race consideration in education ends. But to this end, though, when you look at the history of cases since Brown, you can see clearly that the court itself will change and adapt to the times and probably at some point in the future will provide this timeout. Or in a future decision, the Supreme Court could actually order school systems to have a mandated date or year when the racial consideration ends. That might have been a better way to handle this case. I see merit in the Kennedy concurrent opinion. I think others will. And remember, any challenge now that comes to the court again involving this parent's case will essentially be a petitioner arguing to Kennedy, unless there's another change in the court. So with Kennedy's concurrence, race can still be used in attendance zones. There's still problems with that. Uh, if the problem that the school is lopsided by race, how do you make an attendance zone that integrates? If a school has a kind of a spaghetti-shaped attendance zone, we may see that issue come before the court in, this, in, the, in the future. And then we're going to see what Kennedy's opinion on that actually is. But I hope this has been a useful survey of where we've been from Brown to parents and what's in between. And with history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.